0: This is writer and game designer, Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer, Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... What I learned about Kickstarter. What I did at Metatopia. The Dominion of America. And
1: Anton Zandor LeVay. we average nine new titles a day that's over 60 a week and we've got well over 15,000 rpg titles online right now drive through rpg
0: the one true source for rpgs
1: It's time once more for the business of gaming. And Robin, you have just done the land office business of gaming. Uh, you have been selling hot cakes to starving breakfast consumers, uh, apparently, with the Hillfolk Kickstarter. So why don't you uh, give us a, a post, uh, not so much a post-mortem, but a post-partum, a, a, a delightful uh, look at your delightful experience.
0: Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad you had some sort of way of encompassing how well it went. The, the Hillfolk Kickstarter ended on November 2nd at 8 p.m., and uh, as a Canadian, I did not quite have a word to describe it, Uh, but uh, the hot cakes analogy is one that I will accept. It did extremely well, way better than I in my very modest Canadian expectations or Pellegrin Press publisher Simon Rogers in his somewhat more imperial English expectations. Uh, We both uh, blew the doors off how we thought it would do. So I thought I would, uh, with questions from you, try to extract lessons for other people who might want to be looking at Kickstarter as many people in the business of gaming currently are. And the number one thing that I learned from this is that if your Kickstarter takes off, if it's a busy Kickstarter, that's going to be what you're doing for that month. So if you're scheduling Kickstarter in amongst other obligations, thinking this is just something that I will look at, that'll tick away in the background while I'm writing or, uh, drawing up contracts, or working on a layout, or whatever it is that you're doing, uh, if your thing really takes off, you will not have time for what you've scheduled otherwise other than that. And now for this, I did a couple of things that did make it more labor-intensive on my part, but that is in part why I think it did so well, is that uh, there were things that I was doing manually that you might want to automate. One thing in this case, the Hill Folk game was available. It's a finished game. It's not a laid out product by any means, but you can pick up the rules document and start to play. And so what we did is we made that available to people immediately, not at the end of the funding period, but during the funding period, because the best advertisement for Hill Folk, uh, which if you're just joining this for, as the first podcast is my new game of Uh, epic personal interaction using the drama system rule set in which which you play the most important people in a raider tribe in a fanciful version of the 10th century BCE, early Iron Age in the Levant. Uh, So at any rate, the the best ad for Hillfolk is Hillfolk. So if we got the PDF out to people, that meant that they could immediately respond to it on their forum of choice or their social network of choice. And, uh, also people could write reviews and we got some really laudatory reviews, including, uh, one from Lowell Francis, which was basically describing his process of expecting to really, really hate it and undergoing a conversion experience and wanting to play it immediately in that setting right away. And you couldn't possibly buy better promotion than that. Somebody's sincere, excited reaction to your work. And so by getting that out there right away, that accelerated not only the commercial acceptance of the game, but the acceptance of the game as a piece of design work. And so it collapsed the amount of acceptance time that it took uh, people to sort of figure out the game and figure out how it was different from other play styles uh, from the sort of two to three year period that it took Gumshoe to Click into basically the super-collapsed two- to four-week period of the Kickstarter. Because what Kickstarter does is it focuses a ton of attention on what it is that you're doing. And in this case, it was attention that aided uh, not only the sales of the book, but its uh, reception in the gamer community. And as a designer, that's what really excites me, is the ability to use the focused attention and excitement that uh, kickstarters are currently getting to get a message out there about the content of the work not just about you know how many copies you want to sell and what the stretch goals are so i manually sent out these pdfs to people and the first couple of hours after i set this up on the first couple of days i was thinking I'm a complete idiot for doing this because this is going to be incredibly labor-intensive and it's going to take up a huge chunk of my time. And a couple hours later, I realized that this suggestion, which was Simon's, based on the way that the 13th Age guys organized their Kickstarter, was actually uh, unexpectedly brilliant because it gave people the chance to... uh, write a couple of paragraphs or a couple of lines about why they were interested in Hillfolk and why they were interested in my previous work or um, this podcast, for example. And so basically that became the electronic equivalent of someone coming up to your stand at Gen Con and having a little chat while you sell them your book. And it gave that level of personal connection that uh, hopefully the people on the other end enjoyed. And, And certainly I as a creator really appreciate because As you know, Ken, most of what a creator's work is sort of done in isolation, and the fact that your stuff gets out there into an audience is something you're reminded of only sporadically. And so here we have that equivalent of the personal contact just through the simple email process of manually sending those files out. I also created uh, something that I thought would kind of engage people with the Kickstarter, which was a battle between the wolves and the lions. So when people pledged, they could pick whether they belonged to the wolf clan or the lion clan, and the number of dollars that they backed the project with were then turned into points, which went to one side or the other. And people wondered what the point of this was, and the point of it simply was to get backers role-playing with each other in the comment section of the Kickstarter. And we are role players. Let's make a game of it. Let's do something uh, kind of emergent and silly. And it wasn't complicated, but people really did become engaged with it, especially near the end. And you saw a big, uh, and we couldn't have scripted the results better because sometimes the Wolves were winning. Sometimes the Lions were winning. They exchanged uh, the lead a couple of times. And then at the end, when it became apparent that the one side was uh, really doing better than the other, the wolves, a whole bunch of people jumped on at the end in a join-the-winner effect that uh, you might even see in a real-world election. Or a real-world wolf pack. Indeed, or a real-world battle between rival clans, because Mm -hmm. of course you would see that as one side starts to overcome the other, that all of the neighboring tribes decide to join with the winners before it's too late to grab the spoils. And so that also was... Labor-intensive because I had to look at the comments that people made on the comments page, and then enter everybody's amounts in a spreadsheet and keep track of uh, if if you commented and told me that you'd raised your pledge, I raised the amount associated with your name. If you didn't tell me that your points didn't go up, and so anyway, that was something that was fun and engaging. It was sort of an equivalent of the uh, buy Beth a cupcake. Element from the earlier Stone Skin Press Kickstarter that again made people feel that there was something fun going on, and that because we are gamers, we're going to make a game of it. And uh, it's that sense of emotional engagement that I think that if you are setting up a Kickstarter, that you want to be thinking about, because this is not only a means of spreading an idea; it's not only an innovative way to fund projects or to market something that you're ready to bring out, but it's something that requires a degree of showmanship. And another thing that I think went really well was our ability because of the way that the drama system game is set up in that, uh, I could recruit all sorts of people, including yourself to do uh, series pitches, which are little 2000 word uh, pieces with an illustration that basically gives a group everything they need to know to run, a uh, drama system series in some other context or milieu. So you're doing uh, real life uh, Cold War in the 70s or 80s. Uh, Chris Pramus is doing the Spanish Civil War. We've got uh, uh, Norse gods. We've got a a musical snuck in there at the end. And so Uh, because these are very simple, discrete little bits of writing that I can bring in uh, people from my fabulous virtual Rolodex and keep the announcements going in a way that allowed me to announce something interesting to people each time. Because if you're just announcing, oh, well, we're at uh, 2,090% of our uh, funding goal, that's just a number. That's not very interesting. But if you're announcing that uh, John Kavalik has uh, signed up to do a stretch pitch called the Dagon Bar and Grill, where he brings his uh, patented Cthulhu uh, comedy to drama system, that's an announcement that captures people's imagination and sounds like something fun and and news that they might want to hear, even if they would otherwise be completely tired of the number of announcements that they're getting from me on social media. And so that's really a key, and that was very effective, is that when an announcement of a new stretch goal uh, went out, you would see the numbers tick up, that the relationship between sending out the announcements and getting people to back the project was very, very clear. And so the bit of advice there that I would give to people planning Kickstarters is to think of your stretch goals and other announcements uh, as showmanship and to time them so that they are small enough increments depending on how well you are doing each day that you are making a new announcement About every day, uh, you don't want to go over that line too much, although at certain times it really heated up. And for example, on the last day or when we introduced, uh, new products into the mix that people could buy or new reward levels that people could buy, the rate at which the project funded accelerated and that spaced the, uh, breaking of the stretch goals closer together, that created a sense of excitement. But You don't want to overheat that because there's a certain point at which I would imagine people would get uh, tired of it. And you want people to still feel it's cool when you reach a stretch goal. So, in fact, we were budgeted at one level to to separate out the uh, stretch goals. But I wound up making that amount of money bigger just to make sure that there was enough of an emotional impact from reaching each stretch goal. Because if you just blew through them, that wasn't as much fun as making it seem hard to, to get to them. And what that enabled us to do later in the process, because we had actually uh, made more money uh, than was needed budget-wise for uh, the stretch goals, we could just announce, hey, we're doing another book, and we've already got you know these eight stretch goals in it, we've got this other a bunch of content. And so people were very pleasantly surprised that where normally you would expect to have to hit a big target in order to have a source book added to the project we were just able to say hey you've got this in pdf already and you can now buy it in the print edition if you desire and every time that we added something that of course accelerates the uh, growth curve as more people find something that they want to buy so the first spike we got was when we realized that our reward levels were not quite organized properly and that the package of stuff that people most wanted was the stuff that was directly applicable in play. Originally, as you stepped up the reward levels, the first goodie was a set of art prints by uh, Jan Pospisil, who's done incredible artwork for Hillfolk. But what people really mostly wanted was the package that was the book, uh, the colorful semi-precious stone tokens that you can use as as tokens in the game and a customized card deck. And so once we had that in place, uh, we saw a nice jump. Then when we introduced the Blood on the Snow source book, there was another nice jump. And also another lesson that I would impart to people is listen to what people tell you when they say they want to buy more stuff from you. So there's a bunch of stuff that we did not consider making part of the campaign until people suggested that, Hey, we'd really like to support this more, sell us more stuff. So someone said, well, why can't you sell us copies of Hamlet's hit points? Well, the answer immediately was, well, that's a whole different company and Mm -hmm. that would be very complicated. Uh, but uh there are pals and so we just basically retailed copies of Hamlet's hit points which dovetails with the drama system and and it's discussed in the drama system uh rules text and so we wound up selling a surprising number of copies of Hamlet's hit points and using that additional margin to fund stretch goals or someone asked if there would be a limited edition with faux leather uh hardback of the Uh, source book to match the 125 similarly formatted uh, core books. And initially when someone suggested that, I was just, oh man, I got to go lie down. That's crazy. No one will want that. But of course I talked to Simon and he said, oh no, that's, you know, we can swing that. And so uh, I went back to the uh, backers and asked them if they would want it. And they did. And indeed there was another uh, spike of people buying in to get the um, matching lavish volume to go with a lavish core book. And again, that's uh, the the lesson there is uh, people know better than uh, you do what it is that they want from you. So uh, listen to them and be ready to scramble to price out what that thing might be or to reach out to other people that you work with, like the game playwright guys, and uh, be prepared to act on it. And another thing that I think is not a new observation is just that part of the showmanship is that people enjoy seeing you scramble. They like the idea that possibly you do not have, uh, enough stretch goals ready in the hopper and you're going to have to run out and recruit more people or, you know, whatever your project is. And so, uh, they kind of enjoy watching you dance as they, uh, provide you with a greater success level than you expected.
1: Yeah. I suppose as a uh, ways to, um, uh, entertain people, having them drown you in their money is not a bad
0: way to do it. Uh, right, and it, and Kickstarter is so fresh now that, that people are enjoying seeing a, a well-executed Kickstarter campaign, and so I've gotten com- compliments not only on the product, but on the means by which I used to sell them the product, which is n- n- not the normal yes. state of affairs. People no. are used to resenting marketing efforts, but the beauty of Kickstarter, one of the many beauties of Kickstarter and other crowdfunding is that it makes people feel involved because they are finally seeing the connection between their uh, buying a piece of creative work and the ability through the positive feedback loop of a successful campaign to make that even better and more exciting so that they feel that they are benefiting from it and that they know that the creators are benefiting from that and often in older distribution models that is uh present but kind of invisible uh or not necessarily present at all because you know the royalties that one gets on a you know for example a, a single copy of a novel sold through traditional distribution are, are pretty low compared to the retail volume uh, value of the uh the item, because the chain is so long and there's so many people involved with it, whereas here you have the potential for a small team of people to sell a lot of things directly to the people who most want them, and then uh, not only create something really great, but the people who are uh, buying know that a good chunk of that is actually going to the people that they want to reward. Yeah, uh,
1: the that the combination of uh, patronage and community is, I think, the sort of the Killer app for pretty much all the kickstarters that that work because that's the sort of the point of of building it that way and having that social aspect to it. Uh, the I, I guess my question would be: um, There's a lot of very sort of uh, specialized, uh, unique form factor things in the Hillfolk Kickstarter. I mean, there's the. What uh, a phrase that I I watched go by you know a few minutes ago, and I wanted to to hit it again. Simon's unexpected brilliance, which may be one of the great Canadian compliments that has ever been paid. <laughs> um, <laughs> as, as, in it making... was
0: unexpected to me. He knew what he was doing. I yeah. just had not yet uh, seen still,
1: still, it. Still, still, it gets even more Canadian as you talk. Um, the uh, but but the notion that there's a that there's a pre-existing PDF. Uh, that uh, obviously that the game is top quality, helped out the process a great deal. And there's also the nature of your stretch goals, which were that they were relatively short. Uh, you could involve a ton of people and you could provide fairly small increments of space, both monetary and chronological between them that, that sort of worked really strongly to amplify your Kickstarter, but also to amplify the amount of work you spent on it is there anything, if you can sort of take us a half step back and look at it, that the Kickstarter requires on a, on a more quotidian level, uh, assuming that you don't design it uh, or uh, back into designing it the way that you and Simon did, to produce that level of strong immediate engagement, uh, if if you get what I'm asking?
0: Well, I would say first and foremost, the thing is to not design your kickstarter campaign and then reverse engineer into what your creative product will be but that it really does have to come from a sincere place of creation is that i think if people feel that they are being harvested in a calculating way that they're you're not going to be able to form that community and certainly in this case uh the development window for this has been kind of long and when i started designing this kickstarter wasn't even a thing yet and there wasn't Even the the stretch goals uh, was not something that I thought of as, oh, hey, here's an opportunity to bring in all of these people from different areas of uh, gaming and bring them all together in one product so that you've got everybody from uh, Lester Smith to to Meg Baker in a grand continuum of designers. That part I was thinking, although really that just started off as, oh, I need about 12 people because I think we're going to do about $12,000. So uh, I'm at the uh, pre uh, Annie's reception, who are the first 12 people who I would like to have do a stretch pitch and just went around and talked to people. And I was at that point just thinking it'll be really fun to collaborate with people and have a chance to bring in folks who I uh, haven't worked with in a long time or have never worked with before because there's just a great opportunity for that. I was not at that time having the thought that, oh, wait, everybody is going to promote these through their own social uh, media platforms when their stretch goal comes up and that'll create a big knock-on effect that'll help my marketing. I was just thinking, oh, this is going to be a fun thing to do that will result in interesting creative work. And I think that probably that you're going to have a really hard time sitting down trying to create the ultimate Kickstarter and then figuring out what the product is to go with it. And that to the extent that this was a success, it was a success because it just so happened that all of these different elements worked really well together and created a synergy uh, as much as I hate to use that word kind of spontaneously and i think that's you know the problem with the word synergy when you hear it in uh, uh from marketing dudes is it's not something you can create it's about uh, spontaneity and about the product itself and the creative expression really mattering so what i would say to people is do something that you really love and want to do And something that you can communicate that love to other people because then they will be enthusiastic about jumping in and being part of this. Because in this case, I was getting contacted by people out of the blue who'd heard of it, who wanted to be part of this posse. So, you know, in the last couple of days I heard from Mark Reinhagen and he'd seen the PDF and wanted to do something. And so this is his first role-playing writing in 10 years will appear in the Blood on the Snow Companion. And if you were to sit down and say, well, I'm going to engineer this, I'm not sure that you could, because your attempt to engineer it would be transparent and it would not excite all of the people who got on board with that because they don't want to feel that they're being leveraged. They want to feel that they're participating in a, uh, cool, uh, boundary breaking creative project. Yeah. Obviously, you know, at some level it making
1: a successful Kickstarter is in a lot of ways, like making a successful, uh, any other sort of social experience. You can't, you can't plan a perfect party. You have to hold a party. That's going to be fun and, you know, hope that it catches fire and that it, it works you know, with the, with, the, with the guests and with the theme and whatever else. Uh, you can sort of do things that that maximize the chance of having a perfect party come off. And I guess that's sort of the question that I would maybe pose next. Given that, like you say, that you can't build synergy, you can't harvest a community, or rather you shouldn't harvest a community, what do you think are the sort of uh, don'ts that you might have for a given uh, Kickstarter in, in, a, in our tabletop role-playing Area. I mean, obviously, you and I probably have no idea what makes a good, you know, wristwatch collector Kickstarter or something.
0: Well, I would think, first of all, to you do want to lowball your initial goal, right? Especially if you've got something that is already in a high state of preparedness, you're not asking for $55,000 up front. You're asking for the smallest amount possible to sort of help you with your initial print run. Because you do, out of showmanship, want to create the sense that you've hit your target Uh, really hard early on. And the the conventional wisdom is that you want to get about 30% of your target in the first three days. Well, we got, uh, you know, uh, four times our target in the first three days because people were excited about this. And I'd been talking about it long enough and it created enough awareness that uh, there were a lot of early adopters to to jump on. Um, And so uh, that is one standard piece of advice that I think is apt, but I don't think is framed enough in terms of showmanship, that you, like a narrative, has exciting ups and downs. For those of you who have read Hamlet's Hit Points, a Kickstarter campaign is a narrative. And in fact, they even call the page where you have all your info, your story. And you should think of your story not only as something that you are presenting up front, but something that unfolds over time and sometimes people will be anxious that you're not going to hit a stretch goal or it'll slow down a bit. And at other times you can sort of accelerate it by moving the goals closer together, but that you are orchestrating an entertainment experience by selling stuff, some of which has not been made yet to people via Kickstarter. And so to think of how to make it as appealing as possible. Now, a lot of traditional marketing is unappealing because it is written in an impersonal way has a lot of jargon in it it's plays it very safe whereas you know i was using my usual stanley meets north fry kind of kiddie jokey uh voice for uh, presenting information to people and uh again trying to create a sense of personal contact now that's also a standard part of the Kickstarter toolkit, that's why you're encouraged to have a video and to have a part of the video, at least, where you directly address the camera, because people want to feel that they are interacting with you. Now, in some cases, you'll as a creator, you may be interacting with in ways that you generally don't want to be. Uh, I wound up dealing with a lot of customer service issues that uh, traditionally i would pawn off on simon uh, but here i was the lead face of the campaign and i sort of had to uh make things work for people uh even when you know simon was uh out of touch on a, a vacation near the end of the campaign and so it took me out of my comfort uh, level a bit if anyone has ever worked retail and you've had that dream where uh your apartment and your store that you work in have become one and the same and you're trying to sleep, but there are people in your store. Uh, well, that's actually almost literally the case in a Kickstarter because you're getting up in the, in the middle of the night, uh, and, uh, on your way to the, uh, uh, on the loo, you can check and see if your Kickstarter is ticked up more. And so there's, uh, a lot of stress involved with a successful campaign. It's positive stress, it's excitement, but being very excited and having to bat down a lot of balls for a month, that's kind of exhausting. Um, I compared it to uh, to Simon as saying that, you know, in some ways this resembles a meth binge, but uh, Simon then pointed out that it's an unusual meth binge in which you end up with more money at the end than when you started. <laughs> well, um,
1: I think that we should perhaps uh, leave a little of uh, juice left on that uh, pomegranate If we wish to address Kickstarters again, which I suspect uh, going forward, everyone in the uh, tabletop game industry will be, and that certainly includes you and me. Indeed, yes.
0: So now we come up to the segment we label travel advisory in which one of us has left the safe nook-like confines of our working office and escaped into the actual real physical world with weather conditions and human beings and everything. And in this case, Ken, you, uh, after Hurricane Sandy, went out to New Jersey to, first of all, affirm that there still was a New Jersey, and then to go to Metatopia. So how was that experience? Metatopia
1: was terrific and Sort of uh, strange to be coming in, as you say, as you uh, as you indicate to post-hurricane New Jersey. One of the many things that is delightful about Metatopia is that it takes place in Morristown, New Jersey, which is a almost idyllic little community uh, in, you know, sort of northern New Jersey. It uh, colonial uh, uh foundation, there's a little Village Green, there's a church on the Village Green that goes back to, you know, the 1700s, and as every time I've gone to uh, Morristown for Metatopia and for Dexcon, I always get the sense that it's obviously the set for some horror movie because it, it looks too nice. Uh, for for anything to have possibly uh, bad be going on there, which means, of course, that there's serial killers or ghosts or vampires or something uh, lurking under the surface. But this time, when I came out, a lot of the old trees had been knocked down by the hurricane, and the sky was an appropriately lowering gray. And it was um, it was more sort of uh, like your your little friend Morristown had been, you know, smacked around in a car accident or something. So you were coming in in the third act of the horror movie, right? Exactly, and I was very glad to see that that um uh, well first of all i was glad to know that the uh, morristown uh hyatt where the convention is was in the half of morristown that still had power so that the convention could go forward at all uh, even then about 25% of the people who signed up for the show weren't able to make it in because obviously it draws very much from the tri-state area which in the, you know in the case of say staten island was still underwater and uh, on fire and without power or food and so therefore had bigger uh, fish to fry than gaming conventions, but the part of of, of Morristown where the convention was, uh, which uh, includes Reul's empanadas, which by itself is a reason to go to Morristown, as far as I'm concerned, uh, was intact if battered, and so the convention went forward um, once uh, once again. I think the ho- the hotel was putting up people who had lost power, and so we were p- packed a little more tightly into rooms than is our normal wont at the show but uh the physical uh, space to which you so uh craftily foreshadowingly alluded uh was 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 there for us if not uh, in the sort of uh gem-like perfection that i had grown accustomed to
0: so metatopia has a bit of a tighter focus than a lot of small uh weekend uh gaming cons perhaps you could start by describing uh what that is and how that plays out in uh reality
1: yep metatopia began as a I think it began as an outgrowth from a panel that used to run at Dreamation, which was a sort of an indie game design roundtable where people would show up to the panel and they would talk about the game that they're designing. And then people on the panel and then other people in the audience would sort of give them insta-criticism, you know, sort of – Uh, I've got a game that does this. And someone would say, why would your game do that? And another person would say, well, have you looked at how apocalypse world does this? Or have you looked at maybe changing your die mechanic for a card mechanic or whatever? And so there'd be sort of like a little game clinic as part of this panel. And I suppose that it became popular enough that, uh, Vinny, the, uh, sort of, uh, double exposure, Almanos degrees who runs, uh, Dexcon and dreamation, uh, thought maybe there's some juice in this, uh, in, in this, and we could have a convention that is solely focused on game design, in which, as he put it to me, the players are the product and the games are the customers. And so, if you are a designer, you sign up with uh, Vinny and you bring your game to Cremation, or rather to uh, Metatopia, in whatever state it's in. And then, you, if it's in a play testable state, you run it for alpha gamers that Vinny has known throughout the tri-state area and has asked if they'd like to come out to Metatopia and maybe test some awesome games. Or once they've signed up to come out to Metatopia, he sort of hand puts them into games that he suspects they'd be good at. So he puts people who are card game mavens into the card game playtests. He puts people who are story game guys into the story game playtests. He puts people who are uh, more conventional uh, tactical gamers into the sort of... um more conventional trad game playtests, And so the result is that you get a game convention that is solely focused on game design. Everyone there is there to help design games from the designers to the players. Their goal is not so much to play games and escape from the universe, but the goal is to design games and think about game design and talk about game design. The first year that I uh, showed up, uh, I was a guest of honor and I figured I was just sort of going to luck in on this one-time thing because there was no way that that could work, right? That you could make money doing this model. And uh lo and behold, it was a big success and everyone loved it. And Vinny said, we're doing it next year. And would you like to come back? And I said, absolutely, because it was the closest thing to an artist's retreat. I think that we're ever going to get in this business until uh the uh, until all of us moved to Denmark for the tax advantages and, uh, get, uh, government funding to do it. But then the next time it came back, the, the, the show was even bigger. There were even more designers. There were even more fans, uh, or not fans, even more players and playtesters, uh, and alpha gamers than there had been last time. And that was even with a, a good chunk of the people unable to make it because of the hurricane. And it, it was all that it was the first year and more so. It, it, in addition to, to that experience, there's uh, a sort of in between a playtest and a panel. There's also what, uh, uh, Metatopia calls a focus group where a designer with either a piece of a game or a concept for a game or an outline the design wise or a first draft brings it and sort of talks to fellow game designers primarily about it. And then we provide that sort of focused breakdown that the sort of the round, the gaming roundtables at cremation used to. And that is something that I don't think exists anywhere else in the tabletop gaming world except Metatopia.
0: So did you take some a design of yours to be playtested under these conditions?
1: Last year, I took the dice engine for Casey Jones is Dead, which was technically a design of James Ernest's because he designed my dice engine at Gamma uh, when I uh, expressed my uh, uh, sort of plaintive wish that there be a dice engine for this game, that someone who understood The mechanics better than I could uh, maybe make work. And in about an hour, he dashed off a a methodology of doing train chases and uh, train racing that uh, worked pretty well when he and I played it. And then I took it to Metatopia last year and knocked some of the rust off it and uh, got a a couple more of the corner cases figured out. This year, I did not have time to uh, bring any more of Casey Jones's Dead. And I uh, was at as it happened, uh, pretty involved in testing other people's games and play testing other people's games and, uh, and doing panels. Uh, the first year there was, I think two or three panels in the whole panel track. And then this year, Darren Watts, uh, who lives in Queens, uh, it became sort of a staff member in charge of, you know, panel tracking. And there was a huge seminar track, which bizarrely enough filled remarkably, uh, much better than the seminar track at Dexcon had. And again, I don't know if it's because Metatopia is new and so no one has any uh, reflexes about it, where we're seeing the settler effect, or if it's just that a more design-focused audience is also more interested in seminars. But either way, between seminars and focus groups and two playtests, I, you know, I, I you know, Vinnie certainly would have allowed me to to run something else, but I'm I'm almost I don't regret not having brought anything this year.
0: Now I think I may need to be disabused of something here because. What I am hearing in terms of playtesting for tabletops with the words focus group or people who are helping you design your games are a lot of the impulses that I work really hard when I'm playtesting a tabletop role-playing game to winnow out of my playtest group, that I'm not looking really for people to be a focus group and to tell me about their tastes, and I'm who are going to overthink to the point where they are contributing design ideas that i'm looking for people's responses and i've had you know vinnie pitch the convention to me in the in the terms of you will take your game it will go through a pillar of fire and there'll be and they'll uh scrape at it and poke at it and, and jab it with sticks and all of those things are things that i am not looking for when i'm looking for feedback on a game is that i want a uh to get a sense of, first of all, what confuses people and what they find unwieldy. And uh, in the end, it may be the same result, but I'm looking for people's emotional responses without the level of analysis and overthinking that kicks in when people start to get in the co-designer chair. So uh, is that uh, what is going on or am I just projecting?
1: Well, as I say, because so much of your audience is designers and because the focus group model is actually intended to produce, uh, design suggestions, uh, on a, on an architectural level, as opposed to, uh, responses to the game on a, on a player level, uh, you probably, you know, first of all, you wouldn't necessarily need to bring anything to a focus group. I wouldn't think being Robin, uh, but also, uh, in terms of the actual play test, you can get whatever kind of responses, Uh, you're looking for as long as you signpost them ahead of time. And so for stuff where you talk about, is this not clear? Do people understand it? Is this game uh, mechanic that I've thought of accomplishing the results of the table that I wanted to? Metatopia is like any other playtest environment. Once you've explicated that that's what you are looking for. And of course, if you want to run your game for regular gamers who will um, uh, respond as gamers do... Vinny can certainly set you up at Metatopia for that. If what you want is to run it for game designers who will possibly suggest options or um provide uh, like I say, a more architectural feedback, then Metatopia is unique in that. You you can play test anywhere, and I think you can only play test for designers at Metatopia. I think that the uh the, the feedback certainly that I got for the for the train uh race mechanic in Casey Jones will make that game better and came both from people saying, did this, you know, ask me asking people, did this feel right? Did this feel like a, like a, like basically the wreck of the old 97, the role-playing game, or, you know, what was, what, what could be done with probability? What could be done with your experience? Were you bored rolling all those dice? That kind of question that I think is a more, um, more directly, uh, addresses what you're talking about in terms of uh, the emotional response and play response.
0: Well, uh, normally I would uh, attempt to wring some panel reminiscences from you and some topics for discursive palaver, but I think uh, the uh, different concept of Metatopia has given us enough grist and uh, we can now uh, exit the destroyed ruins of New Jersey until another year.
1: Once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Steve Dempsey asks Ken and Robin, if Britain had managed her colonies better and there had been no revolutionary war,
0: how might America and Canada have turned out? Well, that is the, the brightest timeline. That's the, the dominion of, of America.
1: Well, uh, it, it is the brightest timeline because it begs the question, obviously. The, you know, it, it's much like saying if uh, the Nazis hadn't been bad, <laughs> How would uh, they have um, uh,
0: governed uh, Russia in an enlightened fashion? Or, or in this case, if you know, if people had behaved in terms of their historical, broad, long-term interest and not their individual, narrow interest at the time, uh, where you had a group of people who were intent on extracting the maximum wealth out of the colonies, which, of course got up the noses of the people who are in the colonies and did not want their wealth extracted. So, so the question then would be that what would an enlightened policy have been that Britain could have followed that would have actually achieved that end of uh, keeping the um, Americas in the imperial fold?
1: Well, that obviously is a, uh, you know, a question that is fraught. uh, And I don't think that there's any sort of consensus amongst historians on the topic. One that I don't think gets enough attention is the view of a historian named Stephen Saunders Webb, who has written a number of terrific books about uh, the 17th century, one, the most salient of, this, of which to our discussion is one called 1676 and the End of American Independence. And he makes the argument implicitly that if Britain had just done nothing, Uh, rather than attempt to impose an imperial structure on the colonies, had simply left them as a collection of Englishmen with charters to settle America, the way that they were from uh, the Plymouth and Virginia companies forward to uh, the uh, uh, Caroline Restoration in the 1660s, that America just simply would have, you know, bopped along in its own happy way, sending back indigo and tobacco and, uh, you know, occasionally... Uh, slaughtering Indians or uh, planting the uh, Ohio Valley or whatever else uh, got into our heads to do. And that it was the act of attempting to work them into some sort of logical system that actually caused, you know, all of the trouble and uh, spawned a a series of of American revolutions or revolts rather in this uh, latter part of the 17th century. Now, you can certainly argue that Webb is being either intentionally provocative or uh, or uh, even uh, maybe uh, accuse him of having some sort of larger agenda at work, but then that would, you know, you start down that road, and you're going to find a very short bookshelf of historians of uh, the colonial period who you can trust. Uh, Webb, I think, deserves attention primarily because his thesis is so interesting, and it prevents, presents the question from uh, an angle that a lot of people haven't, haven't discussed. I think the standard answer is that if during the run-up to or the immediate post-war effect of the French and Indian Wars, and I suspect probably before the French and Indian Wars would have been the, the better time to do it, if the British uh, mercantile and political interests had sort of made way in the, in, in their own company for the sort of jumped up colonial Aravists represented by George Washington and Benjamin Franklin that they might very well have been able to sort of co opt the American, uh, for lack of a better term, the, the American upper class or the American ruling class into basically accepting the same level of British governance, uh, of America that, uh, the Canadians turned out to be perfectly willing to accept after you guys sorted your, uh, your own um uh uh, parsnips out uh, in the 1830s
0: yeah in fact i think that that's uh in our imaginary uh dominion of america that that is uh if they had practiced that sort of initial benign neglect and then co-opted the upper class a bit more that you would have gotten what you got in canada which is uh after the american revolution a group of people called the united empire loyalists uh, went north to ontario then known as upper canada uh And the way to remember that is that Upper Canada is to the south of Lower Canada, which was Quebec, just like Upper Egypt. Yeah. So, so so what was established, uh, was basically a kind of a soft oligarchy called the family compact. And so the, the, by the time that it came to throw off the, uh, yoke of this entrenched upper class who could well have been the, uh, heirs of the George Washington and, and Benjamin Franklins that, uh, there was a crusade for responsible government often carried on by uh newspaper editors and it happened in each of the uh what became the provinces what were then territories and so there was uh there were some little tiny rebellions or a couple of guys hanged and so forth but uh, really it was a series of meetings and uh that led, first of all, to a more responsive government, as you say, in the 1830s, and then uh, later to Confederation. And the question in my mind would be that the one thing that would make this not the brightest uh, timeline, the one in which, uh you know, because of course, it would be much better if uh, America was more Canadian, we all know that, um, that uh, the question would be in this less bloodied more meeting-oriented approach to what would be happening in North America, how that would have dealt with the slavery issue. Certainly, uh, Canada was a little ahead of the United States in having an abolition movement, in part because it did not have any great economic benefit from slavery and could uh, therefore afford to take the morally correct position. But my question would have been how would the uh, Dominion of America have then dealt with the slaveholding crisis. Well, I think that you have to look
1: at um, a lot of questions in terms of what's going on in uh, Britain at the time, because as you note, the the sort of uh, connection to responsible government in Canada obviously coincides with the agitation in Britain for the Reform Act uh, and for other sorts of uh, similar Agitations in Britain, the Chartist movement being the radical side of that, and obviously the um, the, the British uh, Liberal Party, broadly represented by uh, the the people who brought Disraeli uh, uh, to the fore, but Gladstone, I, I believe, was a Gladstonian Liberal back before he was a Gladstonian Conservative. So that kind of of movement to expand the franchise and expand responsible government in Britain has its echo, not surprisingly, in Canada, and so I suspect that to an extent the slave question in america would likewise have followed the slave question in britain but the obviously the british uh did not abolish slavery in um the west indies until 1834 uh, which is considerably later than they abolished it in uh, britain itself uh which was basically um throughout the late 18th century and early 19th century.
0: Yes, it's always easier to let the over-there slavery uh, continue. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly, if one has
1: uh, Virginia and Carolina and uh, later uh, Mississippi cotton planters sitting in Parliament, it's going to be a, a more fractious question. I don't know that it's going to wind up having the same paralytic effect on the British parliamentary system that, say, Irish home rule does, but one can certainly see it being stirred into that mix because again the 1860s is when you start having the fenian agitations you start seeing uh the agitation for home rule by Parnell and O'Donnell and it, that all by itself is snarling up the parliamentary system so if there's a few more MPs who are representing slaveholders as opposed to MPs who simply were slaveholders at a remove the way that they were in um uh in 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 Great Britain itself uh, you, I think, have a different batch of, of issues coming in. Uh, as it turned out, eventually the British, uh, paid off the slaveholders to uh, manumit their slaves, you know, buying them at, you know, assessed tax value or whatever, which, uh, is, you know, not the ideal solution, but is certainly better than, uh, a civil war, I suppose, at some, uh, remove. And I think that you would have to, you know, certainly one would hope that between, uh, a larger you know basically a larger free state body in the, the the responsible congress which in this case would be parliament you would not have the sense amongst the southern slaveholders that you that they would be able to paralyze the government and then take it over that led to our civil war uh, because obviously the the south thanks to the senate was able to hold every other action of government hostage to keep uh, slavery going and then was able to agitate for the expansion of slavery into the West, uh, which was the great uh, threat that the Republican party was founded to, to stanch. And, uh, and we did so good for us. But the, uh, the question of how that dials into a parliamentary uh, uh, horse trading set in Britain is I think one that is almost unanswerable. You can, for narrative purposes, you can have everything from an early, a civil war under Calhoun in the 1830s that's put down by uh, uh, the by a bunch of redcoats uh, led by Zachary Taylor or whoever, or you can have it simply just dragging on until the late 1890s, the way that slavery in Brazil did, and finally just the uh, vast amount of money available to the Manchester industrial complex, which would have one assumes under this uh, Britain is not an idiot model. Uh, have been echoed by a a similarly vast expansion of the American industrial complexes in uh, anti-slavery states like Pennsylvania, that that would have just swamped any possible uh, economic interest of the southern slaveholding MPs.
0: So when we uh, peer through our alternate history uh, spyglass into the alternate dimension where the uh, dominion of America exists, does it stop at the Mason-Dixon line or does it go all the way down to Mexico the way our, our Canada and America do?
1: Well, I mean, if if it is being established in the 1730s and 40s, the question, of course, becomes, what's the legal status of Quebec after it's taken in the French and Indian War? Because one of the reasons that the American Revolution happened was because the British government was nervous about the sentiments of the people of Quebec. And so, as a way of sort of sweetening them up to the notion that they were now British subjects, gave them dominion over the Ohio Valley and basically cut the uh English uh settlers in America off from their own westward expansion and one assumes that in a world in which the British have less reason to um uh, worry about uh the 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 sort of uh, tender sentiments of Quebec that they m- or uh, or perhaps even a better example of what to do with Quebec given that they've already uh uh, suborned the American uh, interests that you don't see that internal boundary drawing. Again, I, that I suppose goes to Steve's original question that Britain is not doing things wrong. And so uh, the, the westward expansion is simply, uh, you know, allowed as it was uh, before the Quebec act and obviously by America after the revolution, you know, again, if one is looking for the, the, the uh, sort of um, a Pacific utopia of uh, Canadian dreams, you would assume that the Dominion of America goes all the way down to uh, Texas. And then the question is, does Britain uh, get the uh, Louisiana Purchase made? Because Napoleon is far more willing to sell to the United States uh, than he is to Great Britain. And so I suspect that what happens is that there's another front in the Napoleonic Wars in which the uh, American uh, uh, legions are tasked with conquering uh, Louisiana and Mexico once France and Spain become uh opponents of Great Britain now the question of course is after the war and uh, the need to make uh the French and Spanish monarchies sweet uh to British interests what's the response of the Americans to giving up their conquests and I think again once you start uh, assuming that the British government has been intelligent for by now a hundred years in a row one has passed well out of <laughs> alternate history and into sheerest
0: fantasy yes assuming any powerful group of people uh, <laughs> acting in their textbook best interests and not in their actual best interests is a fantasy indeed but it is a fantasy uh, where people all the way down into tennessee have poutine and back bacon so it is one that we can uh, treasure nonetheless as we uh, exit ask ken and robin Now, finally, our much-praised ending segment for this episode. Uh, Once again, we consult with an occultist in a segment we appropriately call Consulting Occultist. And this time, the question is to Ken, uh, who is Anton LeBay, and does he even really count as an occultist? Well,
1: I mean, I suppose that uh, he counts as an occultist. He performed uh, Black Masses, which is a, uh, a fine part of the occult. And the fact that he did it almost entirely as a publicity stunt, or working out of an immature understanding of Nietzsche, also does not disqualify him. I'm not sure why you would say he's not an occultist. I can understand the sort of disinterest in LeVay generally, because even back when I was consuming these things with a, a degree of, uh, of of broad-mindedness that uh, shocks me in my uh, in my seer adulthood. I never particularly thought LaVey was that great, and I think a lot of it was because he always struck me and again even as a as a, as a teenager when one is most interested in satanism uh he he struck me as so clearly a talk show occultist, a sort of a, a Yuri Geller or um Creskin of uh black magic that it you know it, it paying attention to him seemed like sort of you know, you've lost some sort of contest with him as far as I was concerned back then. And admittedly, even now, I am remarkably unmoved by Anton LaVey, even given the fact that he was born in Chicago, for example, which should immediately um, uh, band him to me uh, as a as a brother.
0: So what took him from Chicago to being a sort of a pop culture Satanist. Uh, well, it,
1: the answer of course uh, was his family moved to California and that should answer pretty much every single part of that question. Um, he was born. I, I, I always have to uh, say this. He was born in a, 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 terrible neighborhood of Chicago, uh, that is now underneath the John Hancock tower. And, uh, given that he founded something called the order of the trapezoid, uh, later on in his various magical lives, uh, The fact that the Hancock building is the four largest trapezoids in the world leaned up against each other to create what in my youth I thought was a trapezohedron a la Lovecraft, but turns out to be a mere frustrum um, uh, is uh, it it delighted. uh, It it delights me even now. And certainly LeVay was buddies with Clark Ashton Smith, which is uh, points to him, I suppose, and was a Lovecraft fan. Although he had uh, his disciple, uh, Michael Aquino, I think, do all the Lovecraftian parts of his satanic uh, rituals. Uh, and uh, Michael Aquino has gone on uh, to flourish as the head of the Church of Set or something similarly delightful. Uh, but LaVey basically, he moves out to California and uh, becomes a uh, circus people.
0: Uh, Another recurring theme of the uh,
1: uh, consulting occultist. Yes. It's almost as though there's something in common with being an occultist and being a carnival barker. Yes. (laughs) But uh, from that uh, early uh, uh, sort of experience, he learned to play the organ and played the organ in bars and nightclubs and became something of a uh, local uh, celebrity and was interested in magic and the occult even back then. Uh, claims to have uh, helped the San Francisco Police Department with occult investigations, which is a lie as is much of his autobiography. However, he began doing lectures on the occult and playing the organ, which was a combination that in 1966 got you uh, into the newspapers a great deal. And he would f- be far from the first person to find publicity a more delightful uh drug, even than hashish or Satanism. And I suspect that the publicity was pretty much the the, the key aspect of uh, if one can call it his occult investigations and his occult work. Uh, certainly, he was he was a selfish jerk, which made him an ideal uh, disciple of, as I say, badly understood Nietzsche. And so uh, he sort of turned his version of Satanism into a fairly puerile. Um, uh, I'm right and organized religion is wrong and God is dead, haha, type uh, thing, as opposed to the uh, considerably more interesting Satanism of the 17th century in France, which we'll have to get to another time.
0: So I guess if there is something notable about him then, it is that he is the uh, Satanist of the McLuhan era, that he is the guy who uh, leverages uh, his status as an occultist into uh, minor celebrity. And so, to what extent does that make him an influential figure over other people operating in the realm of the occult?
1: Well, I, I you know, the occult is very, uh, very jackdaw like. I mean, anything that gets thrown out there, it gets people's attention. It generally doesn't get thrown away. But, and again, this may just be a prejudice uh, in inhaled at secondhand from my own sources. My understanding is that the Temple of Set. And the, and the, and the, uh, Levay style Satanists are sort of looked on as, uh, bumptious, uh, rubes by your, uh, old school occultists who, of course, were founded or, uh, inspired by, uh, <laughs> someone as uninterested in publicity as Aleister Crowley <laughs> <laughs> and H.P. Blavatsky. So again, you know, it's, it's very much a matter of um uh, you know three generations uh away from the source of your money makes you a noble three generations away from your uh, your your vaudeville appearance makes you an an occult mastermind
0: right and and each of those figures used the available publicity apparatus that uh, chiefly are uh, writing books and uh, and so uh, leve uh, I assume that his uh, literary output is even less interesting to you than uh, that of uh, uh, Crowley and Blavatsky. Oh, considerably less uh, than either
1: of them. I think it's better written than Blavatsky, but because, again, it's it's sort of just a hodgepodge of Nietzsche, Crowley, uh, and a little bit of Ayn Rand, it just never strikes me as as that interesting. It's, certainly, there's there's very little in the occult section of it, as opposed to the philosophical section of it that merits interest. And the philosophical section, as I have indicated it merits even less interest to me. I, I should emphasize, however, of course, that obviously if we have any any devout Satanists listening, I am mocking only the founder of your religion, not whatever comfort you derive from uh, the Satanic uh, <laughs> scriptures. Uh, at, at, at an earlier remove, uh, just after the fall of uh, Soviet communism, I was uh, practicing calling things Satanist instead of communist that annoyed me, such as word processors and a uh, a friend uh who at the time was apparently a satanist uh recoiled as if in shock that i would use satanism as some sort of uh, shorthand for something evil which <laughs> <laughs> which strikes me as a m- delightful case of missing the point and of uh the sort of wonderful domesticating uh influences of uh of culture in general
0: well that that would be the ultimate expression of LaVey as basically Ayn Rand with horns, Mm -hmm. is that he, I think, seemed to be leveraging out of the uh, occult part except as trappings and moving toward a variant of the philosophy that being a dick is uh, a great boon to mankind somehow. Mm -hmm. So in order to incorporate him or uh, figures like him into one's fiction or gaming, what do you do to make him more interesting? One of those... Uh, the ways, you know, the obvious thing is to have him as the figure who sort of the uh, fakes uh, occultist, the poseur, who is a, a red herring uh, with the real supernatural thing going on off in the corner. Uh, the other thing, I guess, you could sort of turn him on his head and uh, treat him as a, a double agent, uh, uh, somehow acting to uh, subvert. Uh, the uh, real life evil forces by uh, straightjacketing them and rendering them into a uh, more pedestrian uh, media framework.
1: Yeah, dude, make basically casting him as the Roddy McDowell character from Fright Night is uh, is one delightful approach. The other way is to sort of give him the the role of the charlatan who stumbles on something real, uh, and it rather than. Um, fighting it or fleeing from it, that it sort of takes him over that, you know, it's like, it was all fun and games until suddenly, you know, his eyes started glowing red and because he is so very interested in publicity, what he serves as is a great methodology for connecting your magical activity or conspiracy or whatever it happens to be to uh, sort of B list celebrities throughout the sixties and seventies. He was, for example, he was buddies with, um, uh, Fritz Leiber and Forrest Ackerman and Kenneth Anger and he and Jane Mansfield, uh, mutually exploited each other for publicity, uh, in 19, I think 66 or 67 thereabouts. Uh, and then of course he was, uh, contemptible enough to claim that her, her car accident was caused by a curse that he put on her. And anyone who would, um, uh, try and exploit, uh, Jane Mansfield's death for publicity, I think has left themselves out of, uh, any obligation I may have to, uh, pull a test. Uh, but he um, sort of acts as your sort of doorway into that uh, world. So if you want um, uh, to sort of add that sort of 70s, uh, gritty, uh, bullet-era uh, cinematography uh, feel that is beginning to come into its own as a way to, to set period pieces, uh, I think you have a little of that now in um, The Cloud Atlas. Uh, you certainly got that out of the uh, Alfredson movie of... Tinker Taylor where it being a 70s period picture was, I don't want to say equal, but a, a major concern of the film, along with being a spy film. And I think that that sort of aesthetic is something that Crowley, that, uh, that Levey can bring to the table, because again, that was his whole point, was to be part of
0: the scene, man. Well, What I would be tempted to do is to, first of all, fictionalize him into someone more sympathetic. And then have a Buddy Cop movie based on his uh, claims of helping out the San Francisco police, where you had in the hippy dippy early seventies you uh uh he can be the consulting detective to the straight laced cop and they can uh solve crimes together in that uh milieu as uh found in the films you cite and also uh in Fincher's Zodiac. Right.
1: Yeah, I mean, it certainly if uh if if, if one domesticates him, uh <laughs> much as I suppose uh, his uh, some of his followers have you get you 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 can get a, a a fun character and he to give him his due he certainly understands how satanists are supposed to look I mean he grew a Fu Manchu mustache and beard and he shaved himself bald and he had and he practiced his creepy stare and he and he carried snakes around with him and uh, he changed his name from Howard to Anton so that's a that's a step in the right direction I think
0: and, and of course style wise there's a huge influence on you know shock rock which then influences heavy metal, and, mm-hmm. and and that's, you know, the huge uh, pop culture influence I guess he, he's had is sort of at a uh, degree of reserve, although certainly there's a lot of uh, metal bands that are avowedly uh, Satanist. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, in again, LeVay was not actually a fan of rock. He liked 40s standards, uh, <laughs> like um, uh, It Had to Be You or Let a Smile Be Your Umbrella, the stuff that he was playing on the Wurlitzer back in the club's in the late fifties and early sixties hoagie carmichael's immortal
0: stardust
1: yes um apparently uh marilyn manson in in proof yet again that uh, marx is is correct that everything begins as tragedy and ends in farce made a a pilgrimage to anton Lavey uh in the very tail end of uh of of life in the in the in the 90s and uh was sort of um (laughs) <laughs> LeVay having out, uh, no, I, I guess had having outgrown a need for publicity, or having realized that it was none of it was going to matter at this point, sort of sent him packing. Uh, so we we have a, a beautiful um, uh, uh, dark mirror of the of the torch being passed there. Uh, it, it's just, uh, you know, th- th- there is, as, as you say, if you s- sort of change his fundamentally unappetizing personality into something more sympathetic you can get some symbolic juice from him as the sort of uh voice of the 60s and the voice of the old uh crazy street occultism of the 60s and 70s uh being uh, a neglected uh, patron figure in the 90s as um uh, as as we've forgotten the the truths that were learned on, in hate ashbury or or wherever uh, As sort of a uh, an occult x files he could be the deep throat or he could be uh, a, a a previous figure that is uh, brought in 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 either in symbolically or as this celebrity kill
0: and as when Marilyn Manson shows up, it's hail Satan and get off my lawn. Absolutely. <laughs> Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors: Dork Tower, Drive Through RPG, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Find our website where you can leave soliloquies and obloquies at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height, and he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time. When once again we will talk about stuff.